Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibility. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent. So let's go behind the scenes here for a minute. Ryan, um, one of the things that that I do when we're creating an episode of the Notcast is I hunt for music that is appropriate to the topic. Right. So I listen to our guest interviews and try to identify areas that could use a little extra drama, a little color. Right. So mm-hmm. anyone who listens to the show knows that a lot of the music is creepy. Right. Um, yeah, it's a show about the strange, bizarre, and the unusual. Right. right? So this episode, this episode was different. Wait. What are you mean? You're saying that you actually found that you were looking for like uplifting, like cheerful, happy music for this episode? Oh, wait, wait, no, no, sorry. Um, just kidding. This episode is also kind of terrifying, really. If you're sick of Americans, this episode is for you. Uh, today we're talking there about. There might be a lot of people sick of Americans hey, right hey, now. You think? I'm, I'm not sure. Hmm. I wonder why. Hmm. Um, Today we're talking about medical mysteries, uh, unexplainable or hard to explain phenomenon that happened to regular folk like you and me. Uh, Exactly. Like what if you woke up and you couldn't speak anymore or like you eventually were able to speak again, but you did so in a different accent. I feel really self-conscious about that. It happens and it's called appropriately, foreign accent syndrome, and we're going to hear from someone suffering from it today. Then there's something as seemingly laughable as the hiccups, but it's not laughable if you've had them for three years. Then you find yourself at risk for losing your life. We're going to talk to someone who suffered from that too. But first, we are going to hear from Becky Casserly, a British science writer living and going to school in New Zealand, who is an expert on sleep, everything from sleep deprivation to lucid dreaming. So what would happen if you could never sleep again? There's a fatal genetic disorder that ruins people's lives in just that way. And what happened to the radio DJ who experimented with sleep deprivation as a gag for his radio show? As Becky tells us, It did not end well. That's right. I think that the science of sleep has come on a lot in the last uh, maybe 20 years. Um, We're understanding a lot of the effects of sleep, um, such as how valuable it is for physical restoration of our bodies and our brains. We recreate, uh, we make proteins while we're asleep, which restores the body, but also psychological restoration. So when you don't have sleep. So we often learn about systems when they go wrong. So when you have sleep deprivation, that's how you learn the most about what does sleep do? Well, everyone probably has a little bit of experience of what happens when you don't sleep. So if you go for one night, say, without sleep, you're awake for 24 hours, you feel irritable, um, tired of course um there's lots of yawning but you also start to have this mental fog so you can't your reaction times slow down your cognition becomes poorer and you start to screw up your words those are just kind of the small effects once you start having sleep deprivation extend over two three four days things get really scary 
Mm. Um, so there's um, some examples in the Guinness uh, World Records. Oh, right. We've got. Um, so are we, are we getting into these people who have gone like really long time? Yeah. Oh, the really insane definitely. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so there was the New York DJ, Peter Tripp. In the 1950s, he decided, or maybe his producers decided that it would be cool if he stayed awake for eight and a half days. And they put him in a glass booth in Times Square and kind of made him do his DJing thing while everyone else could observe him, observe his brain crumbling, basically. So he, at first, probably no one could even tell. But um, within a number of days, he actually became psychotic. Um, he hallucinated. He would at first start to see things like cobwebs on people's faces or insects, which were really just specks of paint on the table. Um, but soon he started to have almost like dreams in his waking world. He would see mice and kittens running around the room. Um, then he became really paranoid. So um, he would rummage through drawers searching for non-existent money. He accused one of the technicians of trying to harm him. Uh, he eventually thought that he was not himself. He, said, he thought he was not Peter Tripp. He thought he was an imposter. Um, so he, he went crazy in just eight wow. days. And that wasn't the end of Peter Tripp's problems. After airing all of this on the radio, he had a myriad of other issues from psychological to financial and legal. It seems this truly was a life-changing episode, and his record would later be surpassed by a high school student who had a much different experience. Yeah, he was oh, broadcasting wow. at the same time, and then he, when he was off, uh, off his shift, he would go across to a hotel room across the street, and the scientists would hook him up with electrodes and measure his brain waves and, and kind of monitor his body slowly deteriorating. They would get him to do loads of cognitive tests, which he became increasingly bad at. So they, there was a definitely a significant decline in his mental performance, his memory. But the fact that he actually, he actually had a psychotic episode is really quite alarming. Right. Um, and in the end, he went and had a really long sleep. I think, only like 13 hours. I think I've slept more than that myself in one go, but he slept 13 hours. And after that, his family said he was never the same. His, he had personality changes. Really? He went on to become depressed. I mean, we, we don't know for sure that the two are related, but um, it doesn't sound good, does it? He also oh. went, he went on to have four divorces and, and became involved in the payola scandal. So, yeah, he, he did not have a good life after that. But uh, there were there was a later example, maybe 10 years later, where we've got a high school student named Randy Gardner, and he beat this record. So he stayed awake for 11 days, uh, which is 264 hours without using any stimulants. Um, and his story is a bit different. He didn't I don't know if we'd say he went psychotic, but he had moodiness, massive problems with concentration and memory, paranoia and hallucinations. Um, after four days, he had a delusion that he was a famous American football player winning the Rose Bowl. Um, wow. He also mistook a street sign for a person up close. 
<laughs> so wow. he 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 was a mixed bag though because he would then hold have a co- uh, press press conference, um, and he would um, kind of act really normal. So people thought, oh, he's fine. But then he'd go back into the lab, and the scientists would say. Oh, uh, okay. Let's try and count backwards from a hundred in sevens, and he got to sixty-five, and he was like, "Oh, um, what am I doing?" Like he completely lost. He was completely lost. Um, and wow. I do that sometimes when I, if I'm trying to fall asleep, I'll count backwards from a hundred in threes, actually. And I'll, as you just start to fall asleep, you get to a point in the seventies usually where. You just cut. You can't think. There's like something eating your train of thought, just taking it right away. Sleep deprivation didn't prove to be fatal for either of those two examples, but what if you woke up one day and discovered you physically could not sleep anymore? This nightmare scenario is actually a genetic disorder. Thankfully, it is extremely rare. Records indicate that only about two dozen people have ever had this condition. Yeah, there's a subject of a book um, called uh, "The Family That Couldn't Sleep" uh, by yes. DT, okay. DT Max. Yeah, um, it's called fatal familial insomnia or FFI. Um, it's fatal because it's deadly. It's familial because it's genetic. And insomnia because you just stop sleeping. So it can kick in around your 40s or 50s. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so after you've already had your kids and passed on this horrible disease, you oh. then realize you've got it. And um, uh, it's not your traditional insomnia. Um, the, it's like a switch goes off in your brain one night and you can't sleep anymore and and that's it that you're done no more sleep for you ever um and these poor poor people end up um going through hell um you know first personality decline you know memory cognition moodiness um then going into kind of paranoid um psychotic states and then eventually uh you know, I should stress that every individual is different, but there is like a trend for these um, same uh, symptoms. And then eventually they'll kind of slip into a coma and, and die. Usually I think it's around six months, six to nine months of hell before they finally, the body can just no longer function. And But it is completely degenerative. Can you, I can't imagine anything much worse. Um, so, and, and it uh, affects entire much. families so because of the, the genetic link. Um, so I think you have a one in, one in two chance of inheriting it um, hmm. if, you've, if your family's affected. I assume that this is incredibly rare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a family in Italy. There's a family in America that one of the most uh, – one guy, his name is Michael Cork. Um, who he was a music teacher who suffered from it and, and sadly passed away after about six months. Becky told us she's even experienced some interesting sleep abnormalities herself, like something called sleep paralysis, where her body shut down and she couldn't move, 
even though she was wide awake. It's uh, it's horrible. And um, the first time I had a son uh, seven years ago, and um, I was so excited that I'd had a baby. Like, I was just like, I was too excited to sleep. So the first three nights, I probably slept like an hour each night. And it was mostly due to excitement, partly due to, of course, babies waking up every two hours for a feed. But there's just, um, it's a crazy time, especially with your first one. You're just um, hormones and elation and everything all over the place. You don't, you barely sleep for three days. And uh, I was actually in the hospital one night and I was just drifting off to sleep when um, I couldn't move my body. My whole body was paralyzed. And this is actually uh, a known condition. This is called sleep paralysis, where um, your brain has gone, oh, uh, my body's asleep. I'm going to cut off all nerve signals now because I don't want to act out my dreams. So that's fine. That happens every night. But this time I wasn't asleep. <laughs> I was awake and it was very eerie. I couldn't move at all. And then almost to compound the issue, I had this um, overwhelming um, paranoia that there was a um, someone walking down the corridor to my room trying, who was going to kill me. So it was like a, a waking nightmare. Like my, I was dreaming, but I was awake at the same time. And it was a very, very scary situation. Um, what happened next was then it just got weirder and weirder. So then I started floating out of my body. And at this point, you know, I'm pretty sure some point the, a dream kicked in, right? Because sure. at, at the beginning, you're convinced you're awake, but at some point the dream, dream kind of takes over and you do actually fall asleep. So there I was floating, still unable to move, still convinced there's a, a crazy nurse walking down the corridor who wants to kill me. And then I just... I realized, oh, because I, I know all about lucid dreaming, I know all about sleep conditions. I was like, oh, this is sleep paralysis. I can I can actually turn this into a lucid dream. And that's when I um, flew out the window and I kind of just went into a dream. So it was a, it was a really strange experience. And I'm sure it was triggered by that sleep deprivation. Wow. Now, maybe this is a good time. Can you help define for us what a lucid dream is and mm. why you got interested in that and and what uh, what you can actually uh, how do I ask this what benefits you can actually get mm. from from them sure so um, a lucid dream is a it's a scientifically established um, state of uh, um, awareness where you're actually awake inside a dream. So normally when you're dreaming, your frontal cortex, that the higher part of your brain is kind of shut down. Uh, that's why our dreams are so weird and don't make any sense because that's kind of like our Freudian unconscious having a bit of a, having it, having its outlet. So when you recognize that you're dreaming, you just go, oh, oh, I'm, I'm actually asleep in bed right now and this is a dream. It wakes up. The, the thing that makes us human, really, that's self-awareness um, and that, that frontal cortex lights up. You can see it on an MRI in lucid dreamers. And um, 
this this has two effects. One is that the dream becomes super vivid and tangible. You can smell and you can touch things and it feels real and you can, um, it, it's be- extremely vivid. It's no longer blurry like typical dreams are. Um, the other thing that changes is you can now control a dream or at the very least you can control your actions within it. So it's kind of this really fascinating interplay between your unconscious mind, which is generating the scenery and other dream characters and perhaps some turn of events, and then your conscious mind, which can sort of explore the dream at will. It's so exciting. For more on Becky's adventures with lucid dreaming and the science of sleep, check out her blog at scienceme.com. That's scienceme.com. So now let's lucid dream fly our way over to Melbourne, Australia to meet Kate Baggs, a woman who suffers from something called foreign accent syndrome. This is a condition so rare that only 60 known cases have been reported in medical literature. Now, for those of you who recognize accents, uh, you'll notice something different about Kate. Even though she was born and raised in Australia, she doesn't sound Australian. She actually sounds like she's from Ireland, and she's mistaken for it all the time, sometimes by her own friends and family who think they've called the wrong phone number. Uh, How did she end up with this seemingly adopted accent? It started when she thought she'd had a stroke. Yeah, so um, my name's Kate. I live in Australia. I live in Melbourne at the moment, but I'm actually from the Northern Territory. Um, I'm 30 years old, and I've had a lot of health problems my whole life, but they kind of came to a head probably about four years ago um, when it looked like I had a stroke, and then I had another one at the start of this year, they're not actually a stroke, but it um, it seems to have done just enough damage to change my accent. So I am actually Australian. <laughs> so I think a lot of the, the cadence of my voice has changed. Um, the accent seems to be much more of a Celtic and Irish kind of sound to us now. Um, it certainly does not sound the way I did when I was born and, and before this happened. Um, there's even like the pitch in the tone of my voice has changed somewhat. Yeah, so um, I've for for many years I've had a lot of like general body aches and pain that just didn't go away, and I had a lot of headaches and migraines, um, and just that constant feeling of absolute and complete exhaustion. Um, and a couple of years ago, I ended up going uh, back interstate for a couple of months to see a specialist and he found out that I've got a condition called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which um, comes from the fact that my autonomic nervous system does not function properly. So all the things your body should naturally do, like controlling your heart rate, your blood pressure, your temperature control, your pupillary response, your hormones, all of that, my body does not do those functions properly. So my heart rate is always incredibly fast, but my blood pressure is always incredibly low. So I would pass out quite a lot. Um, And part of what happens with this is because the blood doesn't get your brain properly, I end up with migraine conditions. 
and I've got a condition called hemiplegic migraines, which basically it looks like I'm having a stroke. I get facial paralysis down the, uh, the right half of my face, kind of does that drooping, falling look. And the left half of my body gets completely paralyzed. And um, yeah, so it, it's essentially like having a stroke. I can't speak properly. I can't move properly. I sometimes have issues swallowing and breathing on my own. Um, and yeah, so, so it looks very much like a stroke, but it doesn't cause the same kind of damage that a stroke would. Um, they don't really understand it, and I certainly don't understand it myself. But it sort of it can resolve itself within a couple of hours or a couple of days or weeks. Um, and I've I had the first one of these um, stroke-like episodes about four and a half years ago, and uh, I woke up and I had a very mild Canadian accent, but it only stuck around for a couple of weeks. And it was so mild, you couldn't really notice it unless we were talking for hours on end. Um, wow. And it just went away on its own. Um, and so I hadn't really thought much about it. I don't even have recordings of that because I didn't think about it. Um, and then, like, over the last four years, I, I was having these stroke-like episodes every couple of days, and then it became every couple of weeks. And once I started to get some treatments from a neurologist, they were kind of petering out to about once a month, once every couple of months. Um, and I managed to have a really good six months, um, sort of over Christmas until maybe February this year. Um, and then I think in March it was that I, I had one of these episodes, but the paralysis lasted for nearly six full weeks. And that's probably one of the worst ones that I've had where it's all just compacted together like that. And um, yeah, six full weeks of paralysis was really quite hard. I even tried learning um, how to use some sign language because I simply could not speak. Even my husband was struggling to understand me. Um, and then one day I woke up and I was feeling fine and I was back to normal. And um, I mean, I was completely exhausted, but I was kind of, I was able to move and able to speak again. And then about two weeks later, sort of at, after the paralysis had finished, yeah, I was uh, on holidays in Queensland and my accent just, it flipped. It just changed completely. And it's been this kind of Irish ever since. Um, and it's sort of even even since that it's changed little bits over time. I do have really thick days where I can't pronounce the th sound um, and things like that. But yeah, it uh, it's been Irish now for I think about five months. Okay, real quick, here's a clip of a recording of Kate that was made before her mini stroke and before her foreign accent syndrome diagnosis. Done this lace work in the bright pink, but I have done it incorrectly, so I need to pull it all out. So I have threaded a lifeline through all of the white um, stitches along here. 
it's almost 600 stitches in this shawl. It's very, very big. As you can hear, uh, her accent is much more exaggerated now on some words. The flavor is much more Irish slash Scottish, maybe. And uh, actually, over the last several months, she says she's learned a bit more about why this is happening. And yes, I have learned a bit more about it since um, I discovered that I, I do have foreign accent syndrome. Um, I still don't completely understand it. And I think a lot of that is because um, not even the doctors completely understand this. Um, but from, from what I do kind of understand is that the part of your brain where you control your speech, it's, it kind of, I guess it, it teaches you how to move your muscles to make the different sounds. Um, and what my brain has done is it doesn't understand how to make the sounds that I'm used to and how to move the muscles the way that it's, that I've grown up doing. And so it's changed the way that the muscles in my face work it's um, so that I, I seem to hold the muscles differently to be able to speak differently. And I mean, that's how you learn how to do a different accent is you learn how to change the way your muscles move um, to make different sounds. And yeah, instead of sort of having control over that, I, I just, I don't have any control. My brain is just kind of gone, oh, I, I can't understand how to do this anymore but this is almost the same, so I'm just going to divert and have this as my normal basic language now. They, the doctors have sort of said, like, if I still sound Irish after a full year, chances are it'll probably stay that way. Um, but I have, like, talked with other people who have foreign accent syndrome, and um, some of them say that they, one day they wake up and they're back to their sort of original self. Um, some of them, I, I know a lady, she's had it for 10 years and she still sounds like she's just got off the plane from Italy and she's never, like she's Australian, she's never been there. Um, same wow. with me, I've never been to Ireland, I've never been to Canada. Um, it, it also used to be that when I was really emotional, I would start to get a bit of a Kiwi sound, a New Zealander sound to me. Um, and again, I've never been to New Zealand. Um, but yeah, so it, I never really know if I'm going to wake up and I'll be able to speak and it'll I'll sound like this, this Irish me, or if I'll wake up one day and I'll sound like the Australian version of me. Um, and because of the migraines, I can actually wake up and not be able to speak at all because I'll be paralyzed. So. Yeah, I just kind of take it one day at a time and go, hey, awesome, I can talk today. I don't care what I sound like. I can communicate. That's all I need. Kate says medication has had no effect on the accent, but that she plans to start seeing a speech therapist because some words have just proven to be too problematic to say. And sometimes her speech is so slurred, it becomes too difficult for her family to understand. But she says she's coping. She's met several others online who have the same condition, and it helps to talk through frustrating situations. And if she has to speak in a different accent for the rest of her life, she says she can cope with that. But I'm slowly getting my creativity back. I felt like I had a real block on my creativity for quite a few months there. Mm. And for me, that's, that's my whole life. 
you know, like I'm an art major, I, I'm an embroidery artist, and I'm, a, I'm a knitter and, and things like that. So I, I've been really struggling with finding my rhythm again with doing those. Um, and I'm, I'm getting back there. The knitting is still, I'm not quite at the knitting yet, but my embroidery is, is certainly back on track now. And, and, um, and I'm getting much more into that again, which has been really great. Um, because that's, I guess, how I make a little bit of my money when I can work. Um, but it's also my outlet for, for all of the things that, you know, annoy me with, with being sick all the time. It's how I cope with it is through art and, and particularly fiber crafts and things like that. So I'm very grateful that that's coming back with the accent changes and, and the thinking processes, I'm getting used to them and I'm working ways around them. Um, and I, I suppose in that sense, I'm, I'm getting better. Um, I tend not to use that statement because my autonomic nervous condition and, and my heart conditions and everything, there's not really going to be a better. It's just coping with how things are and uh, moving forward and trying not to let things get worse. So for me, a lot of it is just accepting that this is how I'm going to be today. If it's a low energy day, then that's fine. If it's a day where I can go out and go for a bushwalk with my girlfriends, then, you know, that's amazing. And if I wake up and all I do all day is feed myself and do a load of laundry, then that's fine as well. You know, so I think a lot of it is is just accepting how things are going to be and having good days and bad days and being okay with that. Okay, let's go from an Australian's Irish accent to the British accent of an actual Brit, a man named Chris Sands, a would-be rock star living in Lincolnshire, England. In 2006, then 23-year-old Chris was playing gigs with his band, trying to make a splash in the UK music scene when... One day, Chris got a case of the hiccups. Not just any case of the hiccups, a case that lasted nonstop for three years. And as you'll hear from his interview, Chris made it through the ordeal because of his sense of humor and positivity. So, uh, it was coming up to my 23rd birthday. So this was September 2006. This is when they first, they first struck. And I had them for two weeks. And then they stopped. And that was strange. I went to the doctor and he said it's probably to do with heartburn because I'd had a heartburn petition when I was younger. Anyway, so I had them for two weeks. It was very annoying. And then he stopped. And then in February of 2007 is actually when they came back and stayed. Yeah, so it's it's strange because there's also that famous Simpsons clip where he's hiccuping and he keeps saying, kill me, kill me. Whereas for me, I, I think I saw the funny side of it. I think for for a lot of people I've spoken to, they said, "Oh, I would have, I would have considered suicide. I would have, I, I, because I couldn't sleep, I couldn't function. I was, I was bringing up my food all the time. I really, I was an absolute mess. But for some reason, it was still funny. It was still quite funny that I constantly had hiccups, uh. and, and and every time I started to get down a little bit, or everything get got on top of me, I still had amazing friends. I had amazing family that would." and support me but my friends would still you know they would they would take the mick out of me and, and things like that and I and I would laugh with them because it was still funny but it was it was it was horrible you couldn't sleep you couldn't eat you, I, I, the hiccups were so bad that I, I hiccups in my sleep so the 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 method of falling asleep was you 
hiccups and hiccups for a day, maybe two, and then your body was so exhausted that you just accidentally passed out, and then you woke up a few hours later and still hiccuping. People said, like, you, why aren't you depressed? You should be depressed. And then at some point I thought, maybe it's psychological. Or maybe I just need to be sad about it in order to fix it. You know, you start doing anything. You, you know, you, you've done the standing on your head. You've done your holding your breath. So maybe, then you start thinking, well, maybe it's psychological. Maybe I need to think my way out of this. And uh, so I thought, well, try to be depressed. Try to be depressed. So I'd sit down and think, right, be sad. <laughs> I'd be sad. I was thinking, uh, not really, you know, hiccups are pretty terrible, but my family's really good and my friends are really nice and I don't really have such a bad life. I was, no, actually, try and be sad. Try and be sad. And I couldn't, I, I could not, I just got bored of trying to be sad. and I, I, I couldn't do it. So oh. in, in terms of like surviving through it, I think it's just the way I'm wired. But Chris's life changed forever. He had to quit the band. As he said, eating and sleeping were difficult. As he kept hiccuping, he became a bit of a media sensation, appearing on television as far away as Japan, where he was quite popular. Uh, and suddenly, people from around the world were coming to visit him, convinced they could help him find a cure. The, I, I think I might be at the end of it. Was when the this this guy came over from from China or from Japan. Uh, he, he was born in China. He came over from Japan, and he offered to cure my hiccups. He said, I, "I'm a I'm a mystical guy. He does this thing called ginseng. You know, Segi, um, what was his name? Seiyu Kagiyama, I think his name was. He came over and he stayed in my house in Lincolnshire for seven days, and he tortured me basically." He, uh, he, he he had acupuncture needles for three or four inches long. He would stab them in one side of my hand and I could feel him hitting the other side of my hand on the inside. He had them stabbed into my face. He had a burning stick he would burn me with. He put these hot cups on my back. He would tread on my legs. He would just lay me on the floor and then just with the heel of his foot, just tread on one of the muscles on my legs and then lift the rest of his weight off the floor. So it was just all of his weight on my leg. All this bizarre stuff. But at one point he said tumor. At one point he said it might be tumor, but he pointed to the stomach, thinking it was the, the, the stomach. And um, and, and, and I think at some point when he was round, I was hopeful. He, he seemed genuinely kind and cared. And he thought he was sure he could fix me. And for a moment, I had a little bit of hope. I thought, maybe, yeah, maybe. And then when... When he had spent seven days in my house and just and couldn't do it, that was that was a that was a moment there where I was like, okay, maybe there isn't anything. Maybe that's it. It actually took a trip to Japan on a kind of publicity tour for the country's top neuroscientist to correctly diagnose Chris. It turns out that Chris had a brain tumor, and it was causing his hiccups. The tumor needed to be removed. The doctor said. But the problem was that the surgery could kill him. But at the same time, I've been on German television, on various different um, Australian television crews have come around, and the Japanese uh, TV crews got interested. And now they sent a representative over who interviewed me in my house and sent the story back to uh, Japan. And um, when they did this... Uh, 
they got such a massive response from the Japanese media, uh, Japanese public, sorry, that, uh, that they wanted to do a second one. And they, they called me up and they said, we'd like to fly you to Japan. I said, okay. Um, I've never, I've, at this point in my life, I'd never been on a plane before. So my first flight was going to be an 11-hour flight to Japan. Mm. Wonderful. Problem is, I was still hiccuping, obviously, at the time. And 11 hours on a flight hiccuping, quite unpleasant. But, luckily, they serve free gin and tonics on flights. So, I could stem the, stem the pain. Yeah, so, yeah, flying to Japan. And uh, I had my sister with me. I, I said to them, look, I'm, I'm not going on my own. I need, basically, constant care because I could just pass out. At that point, I was hiccuping so much that um, I was passing out. I found myself just passed out on, on the bathroom floor because I'd hiccuped and hiccuped and hiccuped. And then at one point, I hicked but didn't cup. And I'd stopped breathing and I woke up on the floor. So I, uh, I, I needed someone with me. So they, they flew me and my sister over. Anyway, so uh, I got off the plane, 11 hours of drinking later. <laughs> and... Uh, they had they had the film crews right in my face as soon as I got off the plane. Like you know, as they they greet you off the plane, there's a nice thing to do. But I uh, you know, I blamed the jet lag. Honestly, I was quite drunk. And I think on the so probably the second day, they they took us to this this doctor, and he's just a just a, a small little hospital in the middle of the countryside in, in, in Japan. And uh, this guy was called Doctor Kondo, and he's just an anaesthetist in a hospital there. But he'd been studying the hiccups for, I think, 15 years at that time. Anyway, so I got to this hospital and I was thinking, yeah, well, everybody's tried everything. So I'm not really that hopeful. And uh, he started doing normal tests, taking blood, whatever. And But essentially he did an MRI scan. Now, in England, I've never had an MRI scan. Don't know why. But he did the MRI scan. And he didn't tell me straight away. He didn't tell me anything. He just uh, did the scan. We, we shook hands and he said, oh, yeah, well, I'll get back in contact with you. And, and me and my sister and the television crew, we all left. And we went back and we ate nice restaurants. We did nice things. And, um, we got up the next day and the camera crew came back to me and they, they phoned me up and they said, look, um, Dr. Kondo wants to see you again. I said, oh, you have to. I mean... Uh, I've already gone to see him if he's not found anything you know he's probably clutching at straws and uh, he was going well he wants to do another MRI scan I said oh, I really didn't like the first one and he said no look he's quite insistent he wants to see you again I said okay okay so we went over there and um, and Dr. Kondo he said look I want to do another scan and I said why and he said look let me take you to one side and he, he, he he told all the camera crews to, to stay out and he closed the door and he sat me and my sister down and he showed us the scans. And this was the first time. He said, um, you, this is a tumour. Um, I don't know much about tumours. He, he, he tried his best of English. He wasn't great, but he was better than my Japanese. So, And he said, um, he said it's in a bad place. Said, I don't know whether you can operate. Uh, I know it's in a bad place. Um, I'd like to do another scan. I want to confirm it. So we were in tears at that point. We thought, oh, sh sugar. Um, and um, he said, do you want me to tell the camera crews to go away? And I said, no. I said, 
no, 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 bring them in. I don't care if they get me in tears or whatever. They deserve that footage. What they've done for me, they've found my problem. If they get a, an extra couple of viewers and some better ratings because they've got me in tears, they deserve it. So I told them to come back in, they filmed me or whatever, and, and then they took me off for, for a second scan. A second scan confirmed what the first had found. It was a tumor in a very problematic area of Chris's brain. Back in the UK, he told his family, and they went to get another opinion. This time, they were told, thankfully, that it was operable, but it would be difficult. He was told the surgery would be eight hours long, and if he didn't go through with it, he would be dead within a year. So Chris decided to go through with the surgery, and suddenly he wasn't thinking about hiccups anymore. As he awaited surgery, his thoughts shifted toward the existential, about life and death and what he'd accomplished and not accomplished in his life. So, um... I was thinking, like, this This could be my last day on Earth. This could be my last day on Earth. Hmm. I could be dead tomorrow. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. What does that even mean? Uh, and, you know, you have these weird thoughts. And you don't know what you're thinking or what's going on. And it, it was a bit of a strange night. I had butterflies in my stomach. And I was, and I went to sleep while I tried to sleep. And then I, I woke up very scared on the on the day of the surgery and my family came in and they kissed me goodbye, I guess. Um, and then I was wheeled to the operation. I had, I had three film crews following me. Uh, and, and, uh, I was being wheeled to the, to the, to the, uh, anesthetist, sorry. And, and they were, the, the film crews kept saying, how do you feel? How do you feel? I said, I don't know. I guess I don't feel anything. I, 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 and I didn't. honestly felt, I, I felt nothing. I think I, I'd say goodbye to my family. And then I just accepted it. I'd accepted fate. And I was just like, okay, I don't really feel anything. I'm just a weird, numb body. Just on a bed being whirled around. And then, uh, and then I guess I was knocked out and, and put through the surgery. I had, I had the German TV in one corner, the Japanese TV in the other corner, and the English TV crew in the other corner. Three, three TV crews filming the surgery. I woke up. I remember having the worst dry mouth ever and a massive headache. A nurse was in front of me with a wet sponge on a stick, wetting my lips for me. She handed me the wet sponge so I could do it, and I jabbed it in my own eye, <laughs> completely missing my mouth. It was then that I realized I didn't have the hiccups. I was free. But my arms were bad. My whole body was fuzzy. It was like you slept on your arm, but all over. I could just about use my right arm. My left arm was a mess. And then I, I told a nurse, and she suggested I do the old drunk test of trying to touch your finger to your nose. My right hand hit it, no problems. But my left hand smacked me full force in the face. We both burst out laughing. So that was my experience of waking up. I, wow. stabbed a, I jabbed a stick in my eye and then smacked myself in the face. <laughs> so Chris was cured. Eventually, he regained the use of his arm and was able to go back to songwriting. Uh, to celebrate, he wrote a song every day, Brent, for one full year. Nice. Uh, but the, uh, the rock star thing did not work out. Uh, now he has chosen a, a different occupation. He is an alpaca farmer in France. And says you were stopping at alpaca. <laughs> he is an alpaca farmer 
in France. It just gets more funny. Good. And uh, he says he's much more thankful uh, for his life now than he ever was in the past. And uh, yes, uh, we asked, and he does get a case of the hiccups every now and then, just like a regular person, uh, but they go away after, you know, whatever the normal amount of time would be. Every time that he gets them, he must... Oh, yeah. Be kind of freaked out. No doubt. And now I, I probably will, too. I, everybody who's heard this story now has told me, you know, I got the hiccups the other day and I was really worried about it, that they would last forever. Uh, I agree. All right. We'd like to thank Becky Casserly, Kate Bags, and Chris Sands for sharing their stories with us today. So Becky and Kate live down under in Australia and New Zealand specifically. And did you know, Ryan, that a group of elderly Kiwis has started their own coffin club in New Zealand? Check out our website. Ripley's.com. And you can read about how the members of the club are socializing while constructing and decorating their own coffins. Believe it or not. Some have painted animals or flowers on them, while others made the coffins look like race cars or trains. Check out this and other weird tales from down under at ripleys.com. So we spent a lot of time learning about medical mysteries in this episode, including how the, the mind works and how we respond to trauma or illness. But there's probably one medical misconception out there that's always baffled us, at least ever since Monica got stung by a jellyfish on the television show Friends. You remember that, Brent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for those not familiar, yeah. uh, let's explain. Uh, when Monica from the popular 90s sitcom Friends got stung by a jellyfish during a trip to the beach, her pal Joey had a solution. Quote, there really is only one thing you can do. You're going to have to pee on it, he said to her horror, noting that he learned about the method by watching the Discovery Channel. Their mutual amigo Chandler agreed, adding that the ammonia in the urine helps kill the pain. In the end, Chandler was coaxed into doing the deed because Monica couldn't bend that way, and Joey got stage fright. But did they do the right thing? Don't believe everything you see on TV, because in reality, peeing on a jellyfish sting does not stop the pain and may actually cause the sea creature's nematocysts to inject even more venom into its victim. Quote, it can cause massive stinging, unquote, according to venom expert Christy Wilcox from the University of Hawaii, who has co-authored two papers on jellyfish sting treatment. No doubt some of you are yelling at us right now. I got stung once and I peed on it and it worked. Yes, it can work, but not always. And it's definitely not recommended. So what do you do if you get stung by a jellyfish? Experts tell us. No, you don't poop on it. You don't pee on it. You don't poop on it. Experts recommend treating it by immediately washing the skin. It's kind of the exact opposite of what you said. They recommend treating it by immediately washing the skin in vinegar to stop those nematosis from discharging more venom. Rinsing the sting in fresh water will actually intensify the pain because it disturbs the balance of salts in the stingers. Applying urine to the skin isn't good because while it does contain salts and electrolytes, the concentration varies from person to person, and it may cause the stingers to fire even more. So your pee might be weaker than my pee, basically. Uh. Is that a challenge? After rinsing the skin, the nematocytes are deactivated. Any tentacles left on the skin should be removed with tweezers, not scraped off with an object such as a credit card. I thought that was a weird object to reference. Like, a, why would you do that? But anyway, uh, heat should then be applied to the area. So, 
Whenever you need advice on some really strange ailment, disease, or condition, or even if you need someone to step up to the plate and pee, we here at Ripley's want you to know that just like Chandler, we'll be there for you. Uh. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. The Not cast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Musical Heritage Foundation. The Not cast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode, please go tap that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at Ripley's. And catch us next week on the Notcast where we dare you to come with us into the woods because it's hunting season and that's when hunting folks sometimes report very strange encounters. Encounters with the grass man and the beast and disembodied voices. And of course, some folks who walk into the woods never come out alive. What will you encounter when we take you into the woods? That's next week on the season two finale Can you believe it? Finale of Ripley's Believe It or Not Cat.